From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. I'm telling you this story right now as I'm telling it. It's like I'm that lump is right back in my throat. I mean, this was 16 years ago, and yet it's it feels like yesterday. I did it again. And then I did it again. And again. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio fixes we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. I've always been much more interested in subjects who I don't know how I feel about them. I, I like ambiguity. That was Nick Vanderkolk, producer of the podcast Love and Radio, talking about his interest in complicated, morally ambiguous characters. Today on ReSound, we'll dedicate most of the hour to a story Nick produced about just such a character. Stay with us. It was as if I felt like I was the victim, you know, that I was, that there really was no lesson to learn. It's haunting. It haunts me. As an investigative journalist, Jason Leopold had all the qualities he needed. Drive, confidence, doggedness, to break big stories. And he did. He was among the first to uncover the Enron scandal, which, back in 2001, revealed one of the country's biggest cases of corporate corruption. The one story that nearly broke him, however, was his own, which included not only questionable reporting, but sex, drugs, rock and roll, the courts, a felony, and eventually salvation. Here's Fix. It really did feel like walking into a club and everyone was like, hey, Jason's here. It was, uh, it was, it was great. You know, it it made me feel important. It made me feel euphoric. It made me feel, it made me feel confident. It made me feel that I was about to provide the public with information that they weren't going to get anywhere else. That's the feeling that I got after I broke a story. You know, when people talk about chasing a story, for me, it was like chasing a high. I would go back to my computer, write a story after interviewing someone. Perhaps they were providing me with a document and saying, Jason, no one has this. There is no one who has this. You're the first reporter that has it. Wow, if you break a story, this is incredible. That feeling uh, did feel like that first time I, I used cocaine. I think I was 20 years old, really long hair, had on the latest rock t-shirt, going to New York University, living in the village, and I was working at a record label. Remember those record labels, music industry? This was at the time where like glam metal was at the top of the charts, Rat, Poison, Motley Crue, that true decadent period. It was glamorous. The owner of the label had this incredible career in the music industry. 
He was, in my eyes, glamorous by who he knew, by what he was exposed to, the artist that he had mingled with, that he rubbed shoulders with, the bands that came through his office throughout the 70s and 80s, Deep Purple, Iron Maiden, White Snake, Robert Plant. One night we were just up at the label and um, he broke out some cocaine. He pulled it out of his pocket. I didn't hesitate. I didn't hesitate. I did a, I did a, a line of line. I did a, a line of cocaine. The feeling that I had immediately afterwards was euphoric. All the insecurities that I had, the way I looked, the way I spoke, I could now become anyone. I now had confidence. I mean, it was really like feeling like Clark Kent becoming Superman. <laughs> Hey, can we stop for just a second because my son's waiting? Oh, sure. Hang on. Sure, sure. Hang on one sec. No problem. Hi, Hill. Hill, this is Lauren. She's recording me. Can you say hi? Yeah. <laughs> Here's some milk. Do you want to use this, buddy? Yeah. Okay, we'll be over here, okay? Yeah. Where were, where were we? Oh, we were talking about what it feels like to, um, oh. to do drugs. My cocaine use escalated quite a bit. Instead of using on the weekends, it was, you know, using every other night. It got to the point where I would use every night. Got to the point where I would be up all night. And then it got to the point where, you know... I need to buy some more cocaine. You're not in school anymore at this point. I'm I'm supposed to be in school, but I'm not. I had frequented this bar in the village. It was called the Pit Stop. This was a bar that was right next door to a theater that's featured in Taxi Driver, directed by Martin Scorsese. I remember, oh, I need to go into this bar because... Look, it's right next door to this theater. There was a song playing, blasting out of the jukebox, where I could hear it on the street. It was a Rage Against the Machine, Killing in the Name of. Hey, let me check this out. It was the type of bar where you literally, it's almost like you underground, where you walk downstairs and it's like sort of as if you're kind of walking into a parking garage or something. So I go into this bar and the first thing I see is this New York license plate hanging up, you know, right by the bottles of liquor and it said Mafia. I was out in Los Angeles. I was working for a record label that handled soundtrack acquisitions. And we were attending some screenings uh, for some movies. I was walking out of the screening and there is a woman uh, standing at the exit with just an enormous smile. She looked to me almost like Shannon Doherty from 90210. Which one was uh, Shannon Doherty? 
She was, uh, was it Brenda? <laughs> yeah. I was taken by what I felt was some sort of innocence. I took her card and I smiled and I said, thank you. Her card said, Lisa Brown, music supervisor. And I left. I glamorized the mafia. And this, this will probably sound odd, but what I truly loved about the mafia was that family dynamic that they had. They have your back. If anyone f***s with you, look out. You know, in Goodfellas, where you could walk into any club or restaurant, they would not just seat you at a table, they would bring out a table for you. They would go into the back, get a table, and put it right in front. And right there, I felt like I was kind of at home. My idea of the mafia was the movies I had watched. That's all I knew. I'm aware that these movies where you know people were killed, uh, but even though I wasn't a uh, an executive at a record company, I sort of put on an act and pretended I was and, and befriended the owner of the bar. And I told him that, hey, I can get you uh, some, some promotional CDs for the jukebox. That, that was my, my way of being accepted, sort of buying my way in. When you're in a club and you start seeing people go back and forth into the bathroom. Chances are they're probably doing some sort of drug. I said, hey, what's going on? He said, do you want a bump? Yeah. And I said, yeah. From that moment on, I was in this inner circle. I started to meet people associated with the Gambino crime family. It was like meeting celebrities. For some reason, I pulled her card out of my wallet and gave her a phone call. I called her up and I said, do you remember me? Yeah, of course I remember you. She was working on an independent movie. Uh, I had given her the impression that, oh, perhaps uh, we would be interested in releasing the soundtrack. I had. And was that genuine or was that like a move? Not genuine whatsoever. I was in no position to make deals. We were talking every single night. I mean, all the time. And I felt like I was testing it more and more and more, divulging everything that was dark about my life. It was my past. It was growing up. It was my father being abusive. I started telling her about cocaine, except I told it to her in the past tense, you know, as if I wasn't still hooked on it. She was accepting of everything that I was disclosing. She was the exact opposite of me. 
exact opposite. So she never, she was never been high. She's never been drunk. She had parents who were, you know, very loving and, you know, supportive. She really, to me, embodied innocence. Were you ever high when you were talking to her? Yeah, I was totally high. I mean, I was addicted to cocaine and I could not stop. I, I could not stop using cocaine. The owner of the bar said he wanted to introduce me to uh, a couple of guys. The owner's name was Jet, heavyset guy, truly walked like a penguin. He walked me down to this table uh, in the back of the bar, and there were these two beefy, beefy-looking uh, Italian men sitting there. Lenny built like a rock. Enormous. His arms like giant pieces of meat. Really overweight. One. Uh, had a mohawk, both dressed in Hawaiian shirts. Certainly did not fit the stereotypical uh, image of uh, you know what one would think of as uh, as mafioso. They drove an El Dorado. Incredibly friendly. I felt immediately that I was sort of part of something. Uh, they basically just started to uh, ask me. You know what I you know what I did, and um, and I told them that uh, I. Uh, interacted with musicians, with DJs, radio DJs. Do they, uh... Do these people party? Of course they party. That's, uh, uh, that's, everybody does. You know, the conversation just segued into, would, would I be willing to sell cocaine? Yes, I would. And, um, I didn't even hesitate. I, didn't even hesitate. I, I just said yes. Like, here I am, some Jewish guy from upstate New York, I'm going to be a member of the Mafia, hey, I'm going to talk like these guys too. And they did speak like that, by the way. There was a paper bag that they rolled up, it was like a burrito. They stuffed it down my pants. Lenny, the guy with the mohawk, said, it's, uh, two grand a Coke right there. That's basically what I needed to sell. The Coke never made its way to anyone really for sale. When did she say, Jason, I think I love you? It was probably after about a week, week and a half. I mean, this was... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. These were intense conversations. I couldn't even visualize, you know, that, that meeting that we had. I couldn't make out the features on her face. Yet I just, all I wanted to do was keep speaking with her on the phone. I felt that Lisa could save my life, could truly save me. If you're gonna sell Coke, you you can't be also uh, the type of person who does Coke. The Coke never made its way to anyone really for sale. I certainly did it with plenty of people. They knew that I wasn't selling it. They were pissed. How, how do they know? They asked around. You know, I don't think scared begins to cut it. I actually thought these guys were going to kill me. 
when they asked me to pay them, they didn't say, Jason, can you please pay me? They told me that if I didn't have their money in a certain amount of time, I was going to get a, quote, bullet in the head. So I heard that loud and clear. The only way I could get $2,000 worth of cocaine was to take a bunch of promotional CDs, several hundred, and uh, go down to one of the record stores on Bleecker Street and sell it. Did anyone from your work ever be like, yo, Jason, what's up with all these CDs? Like, it's yes. weird. Yes, and, and, and I made up an excuse. I'm going to meet John from uh, WPLJ Radio tonight, and uh, he needs this for uh, you know some uh, you know some promotion that he wants to put together for uh, you know, something that we're working on. Excuse after excuse after excuse. I didn't know what the end game was. Yeah. I knew there was going to be an end game, but I didn't know what it was. Um, so I'm in LA and I'm spending a couple of weeks out here on vacation. I'm with Lisa. You know, I received a call from <clears throat> Toby, the, uh, the head of Milan. He said, Jason, I've got really bad news for you. Um, gonna have to let you go. The reason he gave me was that I was, you know, screwing up the promotion on this album, and there's no question I screwed it up. He spoke to me as if he were my father, and I started crying on the phone. What went through my mind was that I really disappointed this guy. Nothing to do with the fact that I was involved in the theft of compact discs from the record label. Not the fact that my world was starting to come crashing down. He basically told me, why don't you, you know, spend another couple of weeks out in Los Angeles and just uh, enjoy yourself. And when I come back to New York, I can clean out my office. And so that's what I did. I spent another couple of weeks out in Los Angeles and I asked Lisa to marry me. She said yes. We'd only known each other for, for about three weeks. There was this whole other life I was living that Lisa didn't know about. This life of crime, drugs, decadence. I eventually went back to New York and made plans to permanently move to California. You know, I'm not actually sure if I, if I got the phone call or if I made the phone call, but Anyway, it was uh, to her former colleague, and uh, she says, you know, I, I know you're leaving town, and, uh, you know, you're moving. Why don't you come down to a bar called Sticky Mike's Frog Bar? We want to have a, a going-away party, you know, we'll have some drinks. And I said, great. Great. As I'm going to the city, I was thinking, I want to get 
one last uh, one last bag of cocaine. I wasn't sure if I should do that first or if I should do that last. The person who was giving me a ride dropped me off uptown. The bar was really close by. So instead of going downtown to score the coke, I went to the bar first. I went into the bar and walked toward the back. Stood up and looked around. I didn't see anyone. And I was just wondering, like, where, where are they? I can't see anyone. I suddenly felt this like really sharp tap on my shoulder, like where the nail, like the, the, the nail of the index finger went right into my shoulder. It hurt. NYPD detective, turn around, hands behind your back. I felt my heart went into my throat. I had no idea what was, you know, what was happening. Uh, and, you know, I turned around and, you know, walked out of the bar and you know the bar was packed and, and I just couldn't see anyone's faces it was I'm telling you this story right now as I'm telling it it's like I'm that lump is right back in my throat I mean this was 16 years ago and yet it's it feels like yesterday do you feel like the more you retell the story that helps you sort of react in a sort of a non-emotional way or do you feel like you're kind of stuck into reliving it every time that you retell it yeah um i i I really want to escape from it and i feel like the only way i could tell it is to relive it which is for me unfortunate because it's a traumatic you know point in my life yeah well you know part of the reason that i ask and i don't want to get too much into sort of over psychologizing things, but um, so my dad, uh, he's a psychiatrist. He works a lot in uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and sort of the way that he um, views people who have PTSD is that they do get stuck, that they stay in this sort of like emotional response to whatever Right. Clean and sober, you've you've moved past it, you know, in a in a real way, but in an emotional way. It's just just hearing hearing that emotion in the voice, it sounds like in an emotional way. You haven't totally moved past it. No, I haven't. And um Uh, yeah, I, I definitely have not. Can, you, Nick, can you hang on one sec? Yeah, of course. <sighs> you know what? I'm hang on one sec. I just got to run to the to the restroom. Yeah, of course. Hey, I'm really, really sorry. I'm, I don't know if it's just talking about this or it's coming down with the flu, but I'm, uh, I'm not feeling great. Yeah. Oh man. Um, well, do you, do you want to reschedule? We can, we can do something else. I don't want to. Would that be too much? Would that be okay? Yeah. Yeah. I mean.
you were set up by one of your colleagues. It was a total setup. The whole it was a setup. I remember the handcuffs being slapped on my wrists. I remember how cold it felt. But I don't remember the ride to the police station. I was truly grateful I did not have any drugs on me. They brought me down to uh, what's called the tombs. When you get arrested in New York and you're waiting for arraignment, it's literally like underground and it's dark. It's just a giant holding area. My one phone call that I had wasn't to my parents, wasn't to a lawyer. This was going to be my phone call to Lisa to say goodbye to Lisa. And then I was going to figure out how to kill myself. You know, how to get out of jail and just and just kill myself. This is it. The first time I tried to commit suicide, I, I think I was 13. I do remember hearing that people would slit their wrists. So I went into the bathroom, took a razor blade, and just literally sliced open my wrist. I remember watching my flesh separating. I could see inside my wrist, suddenly I saw this sort of like almost like a tidal wave where the blood just started to come out of both sides of my wrist. It just started flowing out. And I did it again. And then I did it again and again. Unfortunately, I slid it on the opposite side. It wasn't on the side where you're supposed to cut a vein because I didn't understand. I simply just went back into my room, back into my bed, and just laid there. And then in the morning, I went into my parents and I said, look what happened. I don't know how this happened. When I finally came clean and told my parents that this is what I was trying to do. We were in the kitchen and I said I, I tried to commit suicide. And my father went into the drawer and got a knife, gave it to me, and told me which side I should have cut my wrist on. I call Lisa and she picks up the phone and she said, Jason, we're helping you. My father is helping you. We're, we're going to get you out. Her father is a lawyer. I couldn't believe that this woman who barely knew me was helping me. I said, you still want to be with me? And she said, yes, I love you. I was arraigned pled not guilty. The judge said, you know, don't leave town. And I immediately that night got on a plane and went to Los Angeles with a duffel bag. I was thinking that I could find a job at a record label. The news traveled that I was arrested, being prosecuted for grand theft, for stealing all these CDs. So, you know, my work at the, in the music business was coming to an end. And that's when I started looking at my fallback career. 
which was journalism. I always had a love for newspapers. I loved the way newspapers felt. I loved the way they smelled. I got on the phone and I called every newspaper. I told everyone that I had graduated college. I did not graduate college. In my mind, I felt like I did. I felt like I deserved to, but I didn't. I got a call back from this newspaper in Whittier, California. Managing editor said, you called every single person at the newspaper. You're pretty aggressive, aren't you? Because that's what we need in a reporter. They gave me the job of cops and courts reporter as I'm being prosecuted. From there, I just started climbing up the ladder. I'll tell you, you know, when I got my first byline in a newspaper, wow, my name is in the newspaper. This is my byline in the newspaper I wrote this story. It wasn't in the front of my mind that I was performing a valuable service for the public by informing them. The front of my mind was, wow, look at this reaction I'm getting from this story. Wow. The role of a journalist, it's a powerful job and it is being in a position of power. You could really make, break someone's career. You can also destroy a person. You have to be really, really careful. The pen can be like a gun. In his book, Carl Rove refers to me as a nut with internet access. My lawyer in New York said, Jason, they're offering us a deal. Plead guilty to this felony. You don't have to do any jail time. You'll be on probation for five years and you can get on with your life. Don't you want to be with Lisa, get married? And so I took the deal. How did your lawyer get that for you? That just seems like so lucky. Look, I didn't have any previous convictions. I paid restitution. But look, I pled guilty to a felony. That's a big deal. I am a convicted felon. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival. If you're just joining us, we're in the middle of Fix, the story of Jason Leopold, a journalist who, while covering important stories like the Enron scandal, was hiding a double life that included drug use, theft, and a connection to organized crime. Let's get back to Fix. I had already accepted the plea deal. Lisa and I were already married and I started using drugs again. Physically, physically, I felt like I needed to have cocaine and I started using it behind her back. I owed people money. Who did you owe money to? Well, I owed money to these mafia figures. I became incredibly paranoid. It was, the paranoia just took over and 
when I would lie down at night, I felt like literally there were rats crawling all over my body. I would just jump around and move the blankets and scream because I thought that these rats were crawling all over me. And Lisa thought I was losing it. She thought I was going insane. I really exposed her to such an ugly side of life. She went to see a therapist to talk about it. The therapist said, your husband's on drugs. <laughs> Clearly. Perhaps she knew it, but she was just in such denial. And here we were, we were married. Together, we went to couples therapy. And Lisa said, Jason, I know you've been doing drugs. Everyone in my family knows it. And if you don't get any help, we can't be together anymore. What are you talking about? I'm not on drugs. I can't believe this. I'm out of here. And I walked out, walked out of the therapist's office. Lisa started crying. As I left the therapist's office, I got to figure out now how to get out of California and start all over again. That was my first thought. And I just started walking to my in-law's house. I rang the doorbell and my mother-in-law answered the door. And I just said, help me, please help me. And next thing I know, Lisa's aunt and her mother-in-law were driving me to rehab. My mother-in-law and Lisa's aunt are in the intake office. The intake counselor is going through all these questions with me. How much coke did you do last night? Oh, I think I did a gram. How much alcohol did you drink? You know, I answer that question. Do you smoke? Jeez, I don't smoke. Smoking's terrible. And they looked at me like, Jason, we know you smoke. Stop it already. Stop lying. And I stayed there for about a month. That was 14 years ago, and I've been sober ever since. You know, I got a job at the LA Times right after I got out of rehab. Their office was across the street from the courthouse where I had to go report to my probation officer. And so I went to report to my probation officer, and then I went to interview at the Los Angeles Times. And I got the job. What happened at the LA Times? There was like an incident, right? I did well at the LA Times. Worked my way up the ladder, promoted to city editor. It was my first entry into the real world of what a newsroom was like. I expected people digging into their desk drawers and, you know, secretly taking swigs of whiskey, smoking like chimneys, yelling over each other, cursing left and right. It was nothing like that. 
What was it like? It was sanitized. It was completely sanitized. People are very nice, and there wasn't any yelling, and uh, it was conservative. It was kind of a letdown. The reporters that I was in charge of, they were green, right out of college. I was a terrible boss. I sort of took on a role. I portrayed this character, this grumpy newspaper character who was yelling, sort of like Lou Grant, slamming doors, saying horrible things to the reporters when they turned in their copy, like, this is garbage. Did somebody drop you on your head when you were born? What's wrong with you? I was a real I really didn't have any idea what I was doing. I wasn't taught how to put a lead together, what a nut graph is. I think that it was a defense mechanism. There was another city editor I worked with who brought her kids in to work. And I just thought that that was just unbelievable. She would do this every single day. I protested enough to the point where the editor, my editor, allowed the woman to work at home. That made me even more angry. One day, I had music on in the newsroom. I received a note on my computer from the woman who I used to work with who said I needed to turn down my music. And I said, well, how can you hear my music? You're at home. And she said, well, one of the reporters just sent me a note saying your music is distracting him. You've got to be kidding me. I stood up and I said, who the f just sent Deneen a note saying my music is too loud? Who is the f that couldn't tell me my music was too loud? And this little kid, really, little kid stands up and said it was me. And I said, you m I'll rip your head off. He says to me, let's go outside. We never made it outside. I was the president of the Society of Professional Journalists, <laughs> the local Los Angeles chapter. The next thing you know, I'm driving to Las Vegas because we have a convention. I just finished bawling out this reporter. I get a phone call from my editor. This is a guy who I wasn't just employee-employer relationship. We were friends. He said, Jason, and he said, I got really bad, bad news, news for, you. for you. David, who raised the complaint, uh, he went to Human Resources. I've got no choice. I've got to suspend you. This lump, this like huge, huge That's lump hard. got stuck in my throat. People at, at, at this convention saw me turn ghost white. And I hightailed it out of there and just went home. A couple of days later, I get called in. They said that um, we have to let you go. We have to fire you. I just lost it. I started crying. I was trying to rebuild my life. And it all came crashing down. I was clean and sober in terms of the fact that I was not using drugs or alcohol, but I was not clean and sober in my mind, in my head. I was still a rageaholic. 
I was still that addict. But you know, I got into my car and I left that parking lot and I checked my voicemail and there was a message from a woman from Dow Jones Newswires. She got my resume and she said, give me a call. I'd like to talk to you about a job. That was the very same day? Very same day. Wow. It was incredible. It um, led me into this whole other world of reporting and investigative journalism. Do you feel like getting the Dow Jones job so soon after kept you from learning a lesson from the, the L.A. Times experience? Yeah, I don't think that, um, you know, it was as if I felt like I was the victim, you know, that I was, that there really was no lesson to learn. When did you feel like you you did learn that lesson? You know, I would say I feel like I, the lesson was finally learned after I reported the story on Carl Rove. I spent about three years covering the leak of Valerie Plame's identity. Valerie Plame was a covert CIA operative who was working on classified programs for the CIA involving weapons of mass destruction. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. 16 words that the White House now admits were not true, but the administration continued to make the claim and Ambassador Wilson went public. She is married to a former U.S. ambassador named Joe Wilson, a former ambassador who wrote an op-ed in the New York Times accusing essentially the Bush administration of lying about Iraq's interests in acquiring uranium to make an atomic bomb. That um, information was erroneous, and they knew about it well ahead of the presidency of the Union Address. After the publication of this op-ed... Someone in the White House intentionally revealed the name of CIA agent Valerie Plame. Various individuals in the Bush administration... Or two senior administration officials... ...leaked Valerie Plame's identity. Valerie Plame was in fact a covert operative for the CIA. And it was seen as a way to sort of get back at Joe Wilson. As a way of undermining her husband. Her identity was classified and protected. And it is a crime to deliberately reveal the identity of a covert operative. Valerie Plame obviously was unable to work after that. Uh, and it became a, you know, a huge, huge scandal. Including a reporter going to jail and questions as to the role of presidential strategist Karl Rove and Vice President Cheney's chief of staff, I. Lewis Scoot. Special counsel Patrick Fitzgerald was appointed to investigate whether someone in the White What I was doing as a journalist was trying to find out who was responsible for the leak. And so I had cultivated some amazing sources. I try to get an understanding of who this person is that I'm about to speak to, what their politics are, what their ideology is, and um, speak to that a bit. So there's a bit of, you know, manipulation involved, which is not a secret. Every reporter sort of does that. You have to convince them that what you represent is the greater good. And I'm passionate about it. I mean, I really was passionate about the fact that what happened here was retaliation. It's unfair. There's a greater good here. We need to get the truth out. I was publishing 
stories that were groundbreaking. Anyone could look into the archives and see that. You know, I wrote the very first story that showed that Vice President Dick Cheney played a role in the leak of Valerie Plame's identity. I was chasing this, this high. More and more scoops. More and more scoops. Now, Carl Rove had no comment as he went into federal court this morning. Rove's in the hot seat as political junkies wait to see if his trademark game of plausible deniability will keep him out of the dock. Everyone was after Carl Rove. Carl Rove. Carl Rove. Carl Rove. Carl Rove, Carl Rove never apologizes. He just might wind up indicted. At issue here is... Everyone wanted to know, what did Carl Rove know? When did he know it? What was his involvement? It was a Saturday afternoon. I was driving Lisa to pick up her car. I get a phone call from one of my sources. Hello? Jason, Jason got some news for you. You ready? You ready? Yes. Carl Rove's indicted last night. Carl Rove. I literally pulled the car over. I said, what? What? Yeah, it, it, it. You know, Lisa had no idea what was going on. She says, what? what's going on? What's going on? And I said, shh, shh. My source says, give me a call in 20 minutes and I'll give you everything. I'll give you everything. I got off the phone. I said, Lisa, I said, this is huge. story. Um, and she saw that I was becoming sort of like manic about this. I said, Lisa, this is huge news. Carl Rove just got indicted. I got to drop you off and I got to go home and I need to write this story. So I dropped her off. You know, I get back on the phone. My source starts going in, into detail, basically stating that last night, meaning Friday, there was a meeting. Patrick Fitzgerald showed up. He was a special prosecutor with an indictment. He has, quote, 24 business hours, business hours, which I never heard that before, you know, to get his affairs in order. So I started, you know, I made a couple of other phone calls to two other sources and they heard it also. They heard that this, you know, that this happened, that Carl Rove was indicted secretly. I called up the spokesperson for Patrick Fitzgerald. Now it was a Saturday, I knew the spokesperson wasn't gonna get the message. Um, but I left him a message, and I didn't hear back. And I put a story together. I got the goods. I am going to break the biggest story ever. Right then. And 12 hours goes by. Nobody's following it up. And 24 hours goes by. And oh, shit, nobody is taking it on. No one. That story ended um, a month later with Patrick Fitzgerald handing Carl Rove's attorney some sort of a letter that cleared him. I got wrong information and I reported it.
I reported it as if it were fact instead of saying there's a rumor going on out there. Uh, we can't verify this. Don't know if it's true. You have to understand that this story came out right at the time that my book came out. And why that's important is that my book, News Junkie, is a memoir. And it's a memoir in which I reveal all these deep, dark secrets. I lied. I'm a recovering drug addict and alcoholic. I have a felony conviction. The timing sucked. It really sucked. The right wing wanted to hang me. I might as well just have wrapped it in a little bow for them. And then the left attacked me as well. Any credibility I had was absolutely gone. It was out the window. I no longer had it. I no longer possessed it. It was like just standing stark naked in front of the world. I'm trying to go back to that time. It's like, what the f was I thinking? Not only was the phone call on a Saturday, it's like, why didn't I just put a question mark at the end, you know, of Karl Rove being indicted? I mean, that changed everything for me. Why do you think you've been able to move past it despite still having this intense emotional reaction to it? I think that I've been able to disconnect from it. So it's sort of like I've maybe gone into denial, maybe I've numbed myself out. Do you think there's a danger when you disconnect from it in that way? No, because I could still talk about it, and I do talk about it. I don't feel that I'm in danger of repeating the mistakes I've made in the past. And, and why is that? Well, um, I'm tired. I don't have the energy to do that anymore. I move slower now. My goal is to really be a good father and set a good example for my son, to continue to be a good husband. I want to document history, and I just want to make up for the, the past, the, the, the mistakes that I made. And that means waiting, waiting. And that means, guess what? Somebody else is going to break the story. Last year, I had been handed a story about some changes in procedures over at Guantanamo. And I called the spokesperson at Joint Task Force Guantanamo for a comment. And I didn't receive a comment. And I kind of just waited on it. About a week or so later, the Associated Press comes out with the story. I could tell you, I really, really pissed me off, you know, because I would have had a scoop. But you know what? I did have something else to offer. I had some of the more intimate details of this new policy and why it was being implemented. But I will tell you that seeing that scoop and knowing that I had it did... I did clench my teeth. I was really annoyed. I may have hit the wall with my fist. <laughs> you know, I have to ask myself, like, what's the point, really? What's the point of just breaking the news to break it? Why did you stay in the game? <sighs> it's a great question, you know, because um, I cover things now that not many people read about. I didn't want to let the people who wanted me out, I didn't want to let them win. I had a lot more good 
<laughs> to offer the public. On Enron, I broke a very big story about Enron's phony trading floor. I wrote a story recently about a former Guantanamo official who was drummed out of the Army Reserves because he talked to me about Guantanamo. I broke a number of stories about the manipulative tactics energy companies were pulling. I landed the very first interview with Jeff Skilling, the former CEO of Enron, who's currently in jail. I think that the good work that I've done outweighs the, the most memorable mistakes. Over the past couple of months, since we've been talking, I really feel badly for what I did to the people who supported me, who helped me, who gave me a chance. I think I did a great job of portraying myself as an I f***ed over a lot of people. So it's... It, it's haunting. It haunts me. I don't know how else to describe it. And I mean, look, and I'm not trying to like convince you. I'm just like, just trying to, you know, say how it, what it's like. So are you satisfied? Like, do you feel like, you know, do I come off like an ass? <laughs> I hope not. Hopefully not in the end, but uh, okay. only, only for parts of it. <laughs> okay. Okay, good. I can deal with that. Fix was produced by Sarah Liu and Nick Vanderkolk with sound design by Brendan Baker for the podcast Love and Radio. You can hear more from Love and Radio at our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Jason Leopold could be your next-door neighbor, and you would know nothing of his past. Ah, sure, we all have things to hide, but ties to the mafia? Come on. What are the chances that a neighbor has something like that in their past? Turns out, they may be better than you think. This nice retired couple, Charlie and Carol, lived across the street from me in Santa Monica. Last summer, they were arrested by the FBI. Turns out Charlie's name wasn't Charlie after all. It was Whitey. James Whitey Bulger, the Boston mobster wanted for 19 murders. He was my neighbor for 15 years. Hearing about them from my neighbors, I learned something. Living as a mobster on the lam isn't that hard if you just follow six simple rules. Rule one, don't tell people you're a murderer. I just thought, you know, that he and maybe had a very good job once in his life. I imagined him to have been a middle-class business person. I always assumed that he was not a high-powered agent, but a producer maybe that was putting something together and whatever. Rule two, wear a disguise. I never, ever saw him without his round, beige hat. Three, keep the curtains drawn. I said to her how dark it is in here, and that's when she told me that Charlie doesn't like to have a lot of light, you know. Rule four, turn on the charm. 
All I can say is they were very good to me and very kind to me while I lived there. He was uh, handsome. He had a very nice smile. He gave me that curling bar right there in the free weights. And kind. They looked like kind face. I miss them, though. I really do, because both of them were very nice. But don't be too charming. They had that note on the door. said, do not knock at any time, ever. Five, stay off the phone. At one point, I let her know that she had to get a telephone. And she said, oh, I don't think Charlie wants to have a phone. Because, you know, nobody calls us, she said, and we never call anybody. Rule six, always pay in cash. She used to pay the rent always a week before the rent was due and kind of new new bills, not wrinkly old bills. Always hundreds, you know. Those are my neighbors, Brigitte Farinelli, John Weiskopf, Janice Goodwin, Josh Bond, and Catalina Schlenk. All nice people, as far as I know. Because really, how well do any of us know our neighbors? You don't know. You never know who is next to you. Whitey's Rules was produced by Gideon Brower and Eric Drockman for the 2012 Third Coast Short Docs Challenge, which called for stories about neighbors. An update. Whitey Bulger was just found guilty of 11 of the 19 murders he was accused of and sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. This episode was produced by Katie Mingle and Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Our intern is Annie Kostakis. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communications service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.